Chabad. Chabad is just the greatest Jewish shortness. Chabad is like if you want to, if I, if I were ever describe someone like what does it mean to be Jewish, look at Chabad. There's nothing like the first time. It's just it's raw. Like it brings out who you are. Like you can't you can't fake a new experience. You know, it's like why should anybody care to have kids? Why does life care to continue life? Like, it's not me. I'm gone. I'm dead. What is it, what does it have to do with me? Why do I care that my genes reproduce? That my that is how you get to know yourself and get to know other people. If looking at God's world is what brings us to an awareness of God and an appreciation of him and his complexity and his simplicity and, and the wonders and the infinite nature of his creation and the reason and the logic and the sense that it makes and how it works and how profound it is and how it's... So, Mayor, who are you? There's a lot of people who've been watching this podcast, listen to us have conversations. And uh, I think if they've paid attention and listened, they know that we're friends, that we go a number of years back. But I don't know if they, and we know we went to Yeshiva together and they know we have great conversations. But who are you? Maybe somebody would want to know more about Mayor. That's a great question. And I wish I asked myself that. What, what, what does someone need to know? Uh, Yes, I'm sure I've asked myself that. So first of all, my most identifying factor I'd say of myself is that I'm Mexican American Israeli. Very much culturally feel all, all those three. So I'm like obviously I know Spanish, no Hebrew, no English, speak and understand um all three fluently. So that's really my most identifying um characteristic I'd say. Simply put though, we started because I remember one day I just woke up and I'm like, Okay, I have a passion. My passion is to become a life coach, to become a mentor, to become a success coach. And I reached out to you, Mando, and I was like, okay, Mando, like you as a friend, I'm, I feel comfortable enough you as a friend to demand you <laughs> to come to me with something you want to work on. And you know, and the member, you're like, well, you're like, I'm, I'm perfect, man. I need no help. I'm a perfect human being. I need nothing else helping with me. So I was like, oh, shit, like, man, he's perfect already. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. You know, and then you mentioned, oh, okay, you know something? I want to do a podcast. And then we just started doing that podcast and we got to this point today. But the question is, who am I? Um, who am I? I am a. Jew. I'm Jewish. Um, I strongly identify as that as well in every sense of the word, culturally, practicing-wise, traditional in every other sense. Um, I'm living through life. I'm trying to figure out what this is all about, you know? So I'm a curious mind, as are you. I think that's what makes us such great friends, all the way going back to when we were, you know, Chana Olive back seven, eight years ago. And yeah, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply interested in and uh, what life has to give, what is it about, and how we can attach meanings and what kind of meanings we can attach to it. I'm fascinated by the way the mind works. I'm fascinated by by sociology, fascinated how pe people with interactions with themselves work, fascinated by philosophy. I'm just fascinated by what this world is. The other day I was, um, the other day I was, I, was, I was on a boat and like, I'm just going on a boat. We we're here in Miami, going on a boat, having fun, whatnot. And I'm like, this is like such a game. Like life is such a, it's literally a game for us to enjoy. Like, like we're, like we're amphibious, like we could be on water on a boat then I'm going to go back on land and there's birds and there's trees and there's fruit and there's to make money and there's people to meet and there's girlfriends to, to be made or wives to, to, to please or children to give and water to be, to be drank and pineapples to be eaten. Everything, just everything that you interact with, like when you have like a fun Sunday type of that kind of day, just screams at me that there's so much here to be explored and to be given. Um, and it just, it, it trips me out because it feel, it literally feels like I'm in a video game. Like when you're surrounded by that much beauty and that much understanding, it feels like a video game. So I, I guess I'm trying to figure out 
ultimately what this video game is about. And there's nothing that helps me understand that more than having close relationships with friends and sharing with friends my ideas and their thoughts and also here listening to them. That is how I live life. And the way I most of life is by having conversations, good conversations with good friends. So deeper connections and conversations with good friends and family around me. That is how I wish to live life. And that is my happiest moments in life. So simply put, I guess Mayer knows three languages. Mayer is a Jew. Mayer is likes to understand more of what it means to be a Jew and how to apply it and what this world's all about. Um, and just find out you know, more and better ways to continue living this life pleasurably and happily. So it sounds like something you've put a significant amount of time and effort and energy into this figuring, figuring out this world. Is there anything you figured out that you might, that maybe somebody listening would, would, would be able to gain something that you've noticed about this silly game called life? It's, it's a, it's a balance of taking things seriously, not seriously. It, it, that's where the balance comes through because if you don't take something seriously, you're not going to you're not gonna you're not gonna give it respect that it deserves. You're not gonna and you're not gonna get to where you want it to go. Whether it's a business, whether that's a wife, whether that's a friend, whether it's a family member, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a boss, whether it's an employee, whatever it might be, you need to take things seriously for them to get to their desired goal. So seriously, it's very important. And you can see people like Jordan Peterson, people like Abschefto, take life very, very seriously and are incredible individuals, both in mind and in character, because they've taken life so seriously in every single thing is within a with, within a projection of getting to an end goal that's very serious. At the same time, though, you have other people that have taken life a bit more lightly and have kind of enjoyed life a bit more wholly. And they're able to, you, you can see it in their faces and the way they speak and the way they talk and the things they talk about, that they're kind of enjoying life a bit more than the people that are very high strung. So I think simply put, life in itself, what I've realized is that it, it's both serious and not serious. And it's up to you to determine when to make those distinctions and live a happier life. So if you're too serious, find more things to be laugh about, find more things to be to be happy about, to be to be less serious about. It, it might be a Sunday. It might be once a week. I take off either a Shabbat or a Sunday. Or if you can't do that, it's too much a whole a whole 24-hour period. Go for a couple hours. Go for three, four hours. We're like, this is going to be my fun area where I might watch a movie or I might not do something that's so serious. Because I think when you're not that serious is also when life is pleasurably lived. So I think it's a balance of taking things seriously and not seriously. And I think that applies to everything else as well, um, in a sense. But I think that's one thing I've recognized because I'm typically a very serious guy. That is like my default is more to be serious. And simply put, I've lived I lived serious for a long period of time, and it's not it wasn't as fun or enjoyable as it was to be goofy and funny and go out on vacations or whatnot and have fun in that sense. So, at least for me, um, it has proven to be a, a, and also that my seriousness has developed in a higher level as well because. It's not just all the time serious. It's dedicated time to be serious. So I think that's one quick distinction that I can kind of call the top of my head. I guess since Pesach, we haven't really talked since Pesach time and since Passover. And since Passover ends, right, the, the holiday of freedom, we, for some reason, after that holiday, we enter into this time period called the Sefirat Omer, the counting of the Omer. Uh, and there seems to be a lot of focus on this time placed on character development and like self-help and growth and betterment, uh, both like in pop culture, right? Like all the books that are coming out on like doing the midot and, and, and then, but also going back to like, you look at the Zohar and it says that the Jewish people were on the lowest of 49 rungs. If they were on the 50th rung, they would have like ceased to exist. They were as low as they could possibly go. When they left uh, Egypt, and then they 
All right, I'm back. Um, right, I, it said my, I think my internet connection is a little weaker out on the porch. So I was discussing how in this time period, there seems to be a tremendous amount of focus on character development, working on your midot, uh, working on your derech eretz. And so, and right, we see that everywhere from the Jewish people going from the 49th level to the 50th level, from slavery to accepting the Torah. You see that with, in this time period associated with the 49 days of counting. If anybody's not familiar, there right now in this time period, we have Passover, and then we move into this time period where every single day we count to each day. Say that today is day one, today is day two, today is week one, today is one week and three days, right? And we count every single day all the way up to 49. And on that 49th day, at the end of our counting, is the day that we accepted the Torah. And in this period associated with each of those 49 days of counting, there's what's called the Sfirot or the Midot, right? Which are Midot are like you have good Midot, you have bad Midot, you have it's good character or bad character, right? And characters are essentially ways of us measuring up people, right? So like if you look at the psychology sciences, um, like the personality sciences of, of psychology, it's um, when you talk about character tra characteristics and character traits, essentially what we mean are, let's say, openness or conscientiousness or extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism. Um, those are all different m ways for us to categorize and measure the character of an individual. Or you might say, oh, someone's a good person or a bad person. How are you coming to that conclusion? You're coming to that conclusion because you saw them do certain good deeds and you saw them act generously or kindly or patiently. And... Those are essentially triggers. So if I would say, oh, he's kind, oh, he's patient, that's essentially our means of measuring up the person that we're dealing with. And in a similar way, when we say these are God's midot, right, these expressions, such as chesed or kavura, kindness, discipline, uh, beauty, transcendence, glory, uh, integrity, kingship, those are all different facets or different expressions of God's um, character and we can measure we can actually look into the world and discern that this is the way he acts so this is the something that he values and we could see god in in the world so in a similar way that you would use characters midot um to d define a person's characteristics and also mida means a measure to measure somebody up right like mida is a measuring stick um and you have like that's that's what the word literally means so it's our means of measuring up god and in this time period we seem to be very focused on our character development at the same time and so each day paying attention to the different um, virtues and then we also start learning in this time period uh Evot, which is ethics of our fathers which is all it's an entire book on character development like that's what it is and I started, I picked up my favorite book of all time, my favorite Sefer, which is Shemona Prakim, and I'm going to go through it. I'm going through it in a serious way. I'm going to go through it over and over again with the commentaries in the back, and I want to be able to teach it. And I'm just, I mean, I did the introduction and then the first chapter. And first chapter is the description of like the five different parts of like a human or a soul. Correct. No? Yeah. The nefesh? Yeah, the nefesh. The, nef the first chapter is, is, is the makeup of like, is Ramam's motivation, Maimonides' motivation for writing this book, which is an introduction to the Pirkei Avot. 
Um, uh, it's an introduction text, and it tells like his mission statement for the book. And then the chapter one is already, yeah, uh, he says- this What is, is the mission statement? What is the mission statement? He said, I'm, I'm going to talk about this more than I had planned on talking about this, uh, because on the one hand, it is a text that is seemingly easy, filled with easy statements to understand. But in reality, it's very difficult to understand, and very few people understand it. And also, it happens to be a text that's worth understanding, because this character development book, this ethics book, is essentially, it, there's eight levels that a human being could exist on, from uh, like a, a wicked, evil person who to a just a person who does good things and a person who does bad things, to a wise man, and it goes all the way up to the seventh level is the seventh level is pious piety to be a pious a, a yeah pious yes, pious, pious a pious individual to be a chassid um and th that stage comes right underneath the highest stage which is prophecy so in order to get to the state of prophecy you have to you pursue being a chassid which is a refined virtue balanced even keeled uh, focused individual where, uh, and that brings you, and to me, this is like, what more could you want? He says it brings you to great perfection and, uh, and, and true pleasure. Oshara Amiti's true satisfaction, true, true pleasure. And so, um, Shlemut Gedola and Oshara Amitit, those are the two things that it brings you to. So, being that it's easy to misunderstand, it's very important to understand. It will it is the guidebook to living your ideal life, and the ideal life of man, a, a life filled with virtue. And so, because of that, that's his mission statement: is he's going to spend eight chapters introducing a small six-chapter book. So that's what it says his mission statement is. And the first chapter, he says, just like a doctor. In order to heal a body, he first has to understand the body in its entirety and the parts of the body and the parts of the body in relation to the entirety of the body. So, too, when someone wants to do soul healing, Merapa um, Nefesh, to heal his soul, he must understand himself and his how he and in his makeup and the human um, and human nature and human capacity. So that's why he starts off with essentially breaking down um, what is the soul. And so what was so interesting is, and why this, I think it's so core to this time and I think it's what I wanted to bring up is is this character, the way we, the, the goal is to heal our soul. How do we heal our soul is by healing our character. And what he comes to show through the book is how do we heal our character is by is by healing our behaviors and actually by crafting our behaviors and essentially training ourselves, we can actually shift our makeup. We can shift our tendencies. We could shift. Uh, we can, we can evolve and 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 heal and fix our character and bring ourselves to an optimal character. And it's it's a crazy thing because we uh, for me I always feel like I get stuck. Like this is who I am. I am just who I am. Right. Like. And I could either do things differently or not do things differently, but I, I have this disposition. I have this these feelings. I have these tendencies. I have this character almost as if like I'm a blank slate. 
um, not a blank slate, like a static state and like a static person who does things. And what's so powerful is that you can actually not just heal your character, um, but but like heal your soul. And our singular aim is to heal ourselves, whether that's psychological or physical is or financial. The aim is to be as healthy of an individual as we could possibly be. That which is good for me is synonymous with which that which is healthy, and that which is unhealthy is synonymous with that which is evil or bad. And that is essentially the definition of good and evil is healthy or unhealthy. So when you look at the Torah, the, the Bible in its entirety, in the entire, its entire purpose, its entire goal of this text is to provide a blueprint for both healing the individual and healing um, existence. You think it's more of a healing than it is like uh, like becoming? Meaning, meaning, it was like, are we coming more from a point of view where like shit has happened and now we have to rectify that by doing all this work and all these things? Or is it more like, um, no, I, I want to get to this, let's say, place of chassidness, of, of, of piety, piety, whatever the word is. Um, and it's more of like a, a, a drive to get to there versus a drive to let me heal some of the shit that I fucked up along the way. Well, I, I don't think there's a difference. Um, meaning in order to get to piety, like, well, it says, the, and then the singular reason why you want health physically, mentally, spiritually, all of those, um, psychologically, physically, and spiritually, the reason you want health is, like, isn't just, oh, like, and the Rambam so clearly states, he's like, there's two, t there's two people, there's somebody who would eat things, um, even though they make him sick or they're bad for his health because they taste good. Like a, a pious person would sometimes eat things that he doesn't like because they're good for his health and would sometimes avoid things that he does like because they're bad for his health, right? Like a, a reasonable person. And um, and he would work out as opposed to sit on the couch because that's better for him. And so first he, and he like paints this picture of almost like there's like this animal base seeking indulgence, pleasure, gratification. And then there's this uplifted spirit um, who pursues physical health and virtue and psychological health but then he in the next line he's like but who that that person who pursues all this physical health and spiritual health and all that stuff that doesn't necessarily make him virtuous uh, because that might just be what he finds pleasurable like one guy finds sitting on the couch pleasurable and one guy finds going to the gym pleasurable so it's not you're not really a virtuous person just because you go to the gym or just because you read self-help books you might enjoy that, and he enjoys that. What makes you better? And it's because it all has to be under the superordinate aim, which is to know God, is to have true knowledge. And so the reason I, I make money, the reason I eat, the reason I I go to sleep, the reason I eat good food, the reason I go to museums, the reason I take walks in the park, the reason I, I sit and draw, is all so I could be, so I could dedicate as much of my life towards acquiring true intimate awareness um, as possible, right? I, so I could live long, so I could get to know more. So I could um, essentially release myself from the inhibitions that would hold me back from true awareness, right? Like you can't, like you can't really, like the, like the David Goggins type, like you, if you can't, pushing yourself to your physical limits actually trains your psyche, right? Like if you're not somebody, it says in Perkeyavos, you have to love work. And he who does not couple his learning with work, with exertion, with creative labor, um, but exertion, 
he, he's doomed to to sin for his mind to end up in the gutter. Uh, and like you just see how like, okay, so every single Joe Rogan and Andrew Huberman and Lex Friedman, that obsession they have of pushing yourself to physical limits, not just because to be buff and strong, but because that actually makes you a more, uh, like a force to be reckoned with, a, a stronger, more powerful, more virtuous, more capable human being. And I just see that, I just see that. I, I see. I sh- I think Shimon and Prakim needs a few more shout outs because it's one. It's the greatest OG self help book, like that is. That isn't just a self help book that's standalone. It's a self help book by an author who simultaneously or after the fact also provided. He is that a detailed framework for how you, you can po- embody that in the world and what steps and what beliefs to make sure you have and what things to know and what's worth paying attention to and and how to do this and how to do that how to eat how to think how to sleep like uh and that that to me is like i don't know that's my favorite book and that's what this time period is and that's so awesome. i remember taking like third year in yeshiva like i remember like taking a project on and that was the one project i decided to take on which was a shimona prakim and just read every single word of it took notes and every single word that i could and I remember at the time it was great and I learned a lot. And now, you know, I'm sure for the time that I did learn some of it, you know, hopefully sneaked in. Random question, as you're talking, we're talking about cheshbon and nefesh, which is kind of like, well, not, well, not cheshbon and nefesh. You said like kind of like help, like health of the nefesh and like taking care of the soul. You think that like back in the day, like there were like psychologists that you would go and pay or not pay or whatever it is, kind of have an exchange with them, whatever it might be to just sit down and talk out your problems or your ideas or your thoughts? Like, do you think that existed back then? Or was that more like a rabbi figure or? Um, like the Rambam, they exist. The, um, they would be the wise men, the sages. So uh, the Rambam refers to them as, to, as Merape Hanefesh, the same way you wouldn't try to heal yourself, the same way you wouldn't try to heal yourself of some physical ailment, like per se, like, or you might if you have the know-how, but you would seek a doctor, you would seek a professional who could offer you guidance in healing your melancholy um, and, and giving you prescriptions as to how to balance your character and how to refine your character and how to better handle the difficulties of the world. And he, he very much was an advocate of having somebody to go to. Yeah, because if I, if I go back to like modern history, like I don't know if psychologists existed, say, 200 years ago, in the sense they do today, where you go into an office and you just spill out in, from your mind, from your heart, whatever you have to say. Like, I don't know if that was a thing. I feel like people just like, kind of dealt with it, either sat with it and let it let it go, or sat with it and dealt with it, or just swooped it under the rug forever. Like, it doesn't feel like... It, it feels like, as a society, we've become... I'm, I'm a 27-year-old kid. I know nothing, and I've not been around for that long. So I'll prefix it with that. But it feels like, from things that I've read in books and movies and all that, that we've definitely become a way more of a sensitive race. And sensitive, not in a bad way, not in a negative way. It's just that... We are like there's there's less gates in front of our hearts and in front of our souls, and therefore we feel things more vividly and more strongly, which in turn makes us more sensitive, which in turn makes more personal. And then we have all these ideas that we try to struggle with and deal with, like whether it's anxiety, like, like you, you go on Google, look at the word anxiety, it'll tell you the usage of the word <laughs> over the past hundred years. Whoop went straight up. You know the curve is massive. Um, and all these words, all these like words that are so are associated with negativity or associated with psychological, you know, um, pain or whatever it might be, 
that people use, like all those words have been used way more often. When I was a kid, anxiety was not a word that we used. We just didn't use the word anxiety. It was called ADD. And even ADD was like, okay, you get a pill or you don't get a pill. You have it, whatever it is, you move along. It seems like now like anxiety is the word to be used in everything. It's the most used word that I've heard whenever you're feeling uncomfortable. And it's not even like a negative anymore. It's just like, oh, I have anxiety, like an excuse to like, I can't go out today. I have an anxiety, social anxiety, um, uh, test anxiety, uh, failing anxiety, anxiety for everything. There's, there's anxiety for every emotion. There is an anxiety to that as well. To me, like that just feels like, yeah, that's what life is. Like there, there's no, but now there's a word for it. It's a clinical word that we put onto it um, to define the point. And I remember there's an excellent comedian named George Carlin, and he he brings this out so beautifully in a point where he's like, he's talking about um, when you go to battle. He's like in the ni- 1990, like the first world war back in the early 1900s. Um, the 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 term was when a when a soldier when all his neurons became too high strung that he couldn't develop his mind anymore and he not sit and he would just go crazy because they were literally too stressed out it was called shell shock which like you can feel the word it's like it's like shell shock you know it's like right away it tells you what the fuck happened he got shell shock bro boom it got hurt um and then he like he goes along and he just says that the next word it became was um was battle fatigue you know he's like you know we had, we had a couple more you know syllables to it battle fatigue we got to drown it a little bit so it's not that serious battle fatigue sounds a bit nicer and he says like one more thing and then obviously he says the word that we have today, which is called PTSD. It became an acronym. It just became four letters, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, and it became like a clinical, um, you know, um, word that we say, um, kind of like a cold doctor words that just put like an obvious things like, boom, you have this and this is what it is. Um, and I think it's true. Like, I feel like as a race, we've become more sensitive. I feel like there's been less gates in front of our hearts. So we become more sensitive. We let things, we let things in more uh, easily. And then, yeah, ultimately going back to my initial point, I, I think I feel like psychologists are way more needed and rampant in this world. I forgot who I was listening to the other day and he said, you want to make money? It was like one of these like um, motivational speakers, a successful man. He's like, you want to make money? Go into psychology. There will ever be there will be an, an endless amount of people that would like to just sit and talk about whatever the things are going through and they need the help to do it. So it is interesting to see that as a society that we've come to this point. I'm curious about your thoughts, Mano. Just from a historical standpoint or a conceptual standpoint, I, they, we just had different words. Uh, I'll go back to Greek philosophy and Plato and Socrates. Uh, you would call it black bile. Um, melancholia was a little bit later down the line. Uh, Marashora in in Hebrew. And like a bitter, a black, bitter blackness. Like, And that was a, I would just say, so many of our negative emotions and to describe a person like they literally the reason it was called black biles because they in greek philosophy in greek medicine the origins of medicine um like hippocrates they would they we had four different humors like yellow bile black bile and the theory was when someone was prone to negative emotion and seemed to have a cloud over their head and seemed to be in, a, in almost a suicidal very negative state the ambulance yeah it's killing for that bad just said um it makes it it makes it sound real and authentic um so you put it in the uh um and so it had this general category of black bile like of marsh horror depressed right uh, that that's that mental state if you look at rav nachman's facetis is what 250 years old i think he just said it's like is is roughly how long ago he was and all he talks about is depression and the the the, the ins, like 
like yeah it's just it's the depressed spirit that the the spirit that the human spirit is that like one of our defining characteristics is that we have death awareness or death anxiety like the fact that we are aware self-aware of the fact that we have finite amount of time on this universe that plants have finite amount of time that insects do that that our children that our dogs that we are finite beings with finite lives and that I am not you and you are not me and you might be against me and I might be against you and there's limited resources and limited space for security and limited assets and I'm aware of that and I'm aware of my separateness and I'm acutely aware of that separateness I and I can't seem to escape that sensation that feeling that overwhelming pressure and anxiety of the fact that I am a finite, weak, limited being that is separate from the world. I am other from the world. I am observing the world. Like the fact that I'm intimately aware with that and I can't seem to escape it unless we, and then like that's the human condition is essentially creating models of escaping that awareness. So you could argue that the idea of a world to come and Olam Haba and afterlife is an evolved concept to make human beings less afraid of death or to to somehow live in a broader context or you could say that any any drug that we take whether it's alcohol or heroin or fentanyl or ecstasy or like i wouldn't say no any psycho mind altering drug i would say uh cannabis you could say uh, sex, like where it really alters your chemistry and allows you to like essentially escape from this world where either the outside, the world outside of me disappears, it ceases to exist, or I cease to exist as like a ego boundaryed self. And when you dissolve either one of those two, my awareness of my separateness seems to dissipate. But then we live in societies where those drugs and those scenes and uh, reefer madness and you're going to end up playing jazz music and like all like all these stigmas so I drink and then now I f not uh, because I felt separate and alienated from the world around me and I wanted to dull that sense I wanted to numb a little bit I want to take round the edges of life a little bit and I do that and I and I grasp for that and as a result of me participating in that activity I actually feel more guilty and more shame and more removed from the world. So I need to do it again and again and again. And basically, whether it's, and we have all the, and then, or like as Eric from, I'm reading his book, Escape from Freedom, where we have, we live in a, in a, a post, um, we live in a, like we're, we're the chains and shackles of the, pre-individualistic societies where you were just a member of a, a tribe or you were just a member of a group to the degree of which you served the group was to the degree of which you had worth of an ind as an individual and you were slaved and trapped to your community your neck of the woods and there wasn't much options for you and you're really trapped and you had religious dogmas and you had all these things that trapped us and made us slaves and and we had tyrant tyrannical kings that we lived as serfs with classes and we get liberated from that. This is just to bring it back to this time of year where we get released from the shackles. Like we're released from the inhibitions. Like I'm free. I'm a kid. I'm out of the house. My parents are gone. 
right? I can do anything I want, right? That feeling, that sensation. And then now what do you do? What do you want, right? So now that you're free from something, going forward, now that you're an individual, you're, you're, right, you're, you stand out, you're a target, you are vulnerable, you are, you're no longer melting into the group, you're no longer a part of a larger whole that kept you safe, you're an individual, you're a vagabond, and that loop that, where you're just like, I got my freedom, and now I'm free, what do I do with it, and that's why you have someone like Hitler rise to power, is his claim, that he offers you a national identity, something to be free to do, uh, a mission, a vision, somewhere, someone to, something to stand for, something to be a part of. And even though it means my liberties get taken away and my freedoms get taken away, I'm, and maybe all of them, I, I more want to avoid that anxiety, that stress, that awareness of separateness. So I choose to become part of a collective and that provides me with safety. And so, so I, I'd say all, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's the question you're saying is, is there a world, are we more anxious now than we were before? Are we more sensitive now? I don't know. I wasn't alive then. Uh, I, we may, I always say it's clear that we deal with it differently, that we have different circumstances in which our anxiety gets triggered, certain safeties that we have that they didn't have, certain sense of securities that they did have. Uh, like we, we just, we're, it's a different world. So I don't know that it's. I, but the fact that it's been spoken about since day one, like that Adam ate from the tree and he was naked and ashamed, like the, and he was aware of his separateness, like the fact that that's our recorded story tells me that this is not some new trend. Uh, and we are hopefully coming to the end. So are we just more open about it, you feel? Because it seems to me that we're more open about it. Or there's more help to be, that we're seeking more of help towards it. Um, and it's not just like, oh, um, okay, ruach ram, okay, deal with it, or I go to sleep, buddy. You know, smoke some of this little spice over here, and you know, see you tomorrow morning. That's exactly like, what we do. What did I just do? I just smoked a little joint. I just smoked a little bit of that spice, <laughs> and you see me tomorrow morning. Yes, but you're still gonna have it tomorrow morning. You'll still be with it, and you'll still have it, and you'll still talk about it, and you still love it, rummage around your mind. It's. Uh, I'll tell you what it feels like. It feels like. It seems like to me like. Of course, like you're describing it's a great description that this. What was the word you said? The ruach rano, the melancholy, the marshkora, marshkora. Perfect. It's like a black marshkora is basically like 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 a dark cloud. That's all it means, right? And it's a great analogy for the word it means. It seems to me that as we've developed, and I do believe that we become more complex human beings as time has developed, one hundred percent, without doubt, that we become more. We become. We've been able to receive more, develop more, create more, be more as time has gotten, uh, as time has progressed. And I think where we are now as civilization, this is the most we've ever been. And I think that's always the case. So we go back a hundred years, that's the most they've ever been. And so far all the way back. So I think we've developed immensely as a race. And I think that, I think like back then, like um, the, the Marsh horror was more of like, okay, you can feel it. It's more black and white. You feel it and then you don't feel it. You know, it, it wasn't like as deeply developed as I feel like we have, we have now today, we have so many words and so many descriptions and so much time allotted to this um to, to this like dark black cloud that exists at, by being human it's a part of it's a part of our existence as you mentioned with the story of animation like the first story that's ever said into the world and to us has the word ashamed in it you know so clearly it runs deep within our within our nature and, with, and probably the way that we're nurtured as well but it does feel like we spend a lot more time on it 
Like maybe back then, like, yes, you had a bad day, you fall asleep, then boom, you had to work the other day. And I think it's simply because we have more time to just exist. Meaning there's more couch time, there's more Netflix time, there's more smoking time, there's more hanging out time, there's more chill time. We live in such an immense, we live in a time of such immense wealth that we just have more time to sit around and let our brains go places. Like you go back, go back 40 years, ask your dad if when he was now 20 until the day he was 35, if he worked every single day of his life. He probably did. He probably worked almost every single day to try to build a family that he built and have you. And bask his friend and his friend. They probably, they worked way more than we did. 100%. They my more my dad, my dad. Whether it was a work, whether it was just their minds were less open. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I think it's, it has to be, you know, they're like, Good times create weak men. Weak men create bad times. Bad times create strong men. Strong times create strong. Bad times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create bad times. Bad times create strong men. Strong men create good times. And that's the the cycle of the world. And right now, we have been experiencing the better half of let's say seventy five years, where at least in our neck of the wor world. We are more comfortable. We have less, like, we're not, I don't, like, I, I was just laughing with my therapist. It's like, you can ask me to be anxious about things that I, I know I don't need to be anxious about, right? Like, yes, I imagine if I didn't have parents who loved me, who had the ability to offer me support when I need it, and I didn't have a wife that I know um, could help me, and I knew I didn't have all these massive blessings that I walk around with, yes, I would walk around with a fire under my ass and be more motivated to get food on my table and that would drive me and that would be a clear-cut necessary focus and we live in a world where I have the choice to like debate whether or not I might want to be a freaking philosopher like or like a psychologist like uh, and and not start uh, a textile business or not start a plumbing factory or not start a tech company or an Amazon business and hustle 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 make it hustle make money get status, you'll get security, you'll get safety, then you'll be able to do what you want to do. Just come, dude, do this for 10 years and you are going to be able to have all the money you need in order to make the perfect studio and the perfect and and, and, the, and the best video editors and the tech's going to be better and you'll be able to pay for all the guests that you know you could get um, if you just paid them to get there. And to me, it's don't make your Torah study, make what is important to you a fixed practice. Uh, and don't say that when I have time, I will learn uh, because you will never have time. And that is the way the world works. So you said, I don't know, my dad also different generation than my grandfather or my grandfather. I Let's let's put this. I can look at my family and my great grandfather, Abe Silverman, he started a spring company in Pittsburgh. That made springs for different appliances, and right now the company is 95 years old or something like that, 93 years old, and I, there's three generations working under one roof at one time right now. Uh, it's in its it's in its fifth generation, um, and no, it's not. It's in its fourth generation now, and. Yeah, so I grew up in a house where my dad inherited a company that was that was ex my great grandfather created a company. My grandfather expanded and developed a company into what it is, and my father and his brothers and his generation they reaped the rewards and got the good salaries and 
and just got to live the good life and maintain a very solid, very good business. And then now this fourth generation is, this could either be an old archaic company that stays that way and maybe dies because, and then, but we want to, we were alive for another 60 years. So we want to, let's say, maybe take that risk and make this thing grow. Or are you going to be the 60 year old, 65 year old who say, yeah, let's just sell the company and we'll retire off of it. And, and we don't need another generation to keep it going. So I, I grew up in a household where money comes from God. Uh, like, and my dad has never been without money, right? Like, it's like you give your miser and you give lots of it and you're meticulous about it and you work and you make a vessel. Uh, uh, you give God the possibility of uh, a natural way to pass you an income, then like it'll, it'll happen. And obviously like that, and that's the way you work and that's the way the world works. It's not how much can I make so I could save and invest so I can pay attention to all my assets and all my passive incomes, which are really like, Oh, if I own five, if I was, if I had five properties, what that would really mean is five mortgages and five mortgages means five things pulling money out of my pocket and that I'm, that I'm a slave to. So I could get some security later. One day I own it 26 years down the line, a life sentence later, I'm paid off. I, if <laughs> like, like, like it, what's crazy is that you can own 80% of your house and the bank could like, you, and so you stop making payments and the bank could take your house. Like that's the world we live in. You don't own your house until you have 100% of it and no one can take it from you with any legal validity. So I don't know. I, I just, yeah, this rat race. Oh, and I got a job today. You did? I did. Congratulations. What do you yeah. do? Who do you work for? There's What's this your occupation, sir? There's, there's this really cool uh, coffee shop, uh, specialty coffee shop in Emek Rafaim in Jerusalem that is, first off, aesthetically so pleasing and beautiful. And it's... What's it called? Casa Levi. It's... A, it's Mexican-owned uh, business, and he's no, maybe you way. absolutely freaking uh, in love with making coffee and bringing a genuinely uh, flavorful, unique, boutique, best beans in the world to Israel and making that type of experience. So I'm going to be a barista there. I have the honor of, amazing. of being a barista there. Dude, that's awesome. I'm trying to see what it looks like. Dude, I've not been in Israel in like a year. Yeah, you got to get over here. You're ass here. Next time you take a break, don't go to freaking Colombia. Bring your girl to Israel. <laughs> Introduce. It's been a while either. One one really good thing. One really good thing to do um, with somebody before to see how good of a partner you are before you marry them is to go on a trip with them. Uh, is to see how they travel, and it's good for them because they'll see you when you're out of your your environment where well, you're like, like just you're a different person when you travel. So travel somewhere like Israel, but also travel somewhere that you're uncomfortable. Like that maybe you've never been before that both of you've never been before. Um, and see how that goes. That's good advice for planning on hopefully going to Costa Rica soon. And I always feel like the best thing like about, I mean, my favorite time I've ever lived in this world has been traveling with a loved person. And that's either been a, I mean, especially when it's a girl, cause there's more to love, but like with my brother, and with the two with the two girlfriends that I've had, 
best, the, that is the most love and life that I've ever felt in my life was traveling with a loved person. Literally, like where I want to live, where, where my state of like all happiness, traveling with a loved person. And yeah, with Deborah now, like we are hopefully planning on going to like a trip soon. And yeah, because I've always said like, when you're traveling, like it, it's the most raw you're both and you're staying together. So like, you can't run away from each other. You're both in a different country. Like, there's no like, okay, I'll see you later. Like, no, like you're there. Like, you can't run away from anything. You are in each other's faces for whatever it is, three days, four days a week. And that's a you get lost. Of what it would be you like. get stressed. Like, yeah, you have to deal with new situations. You missed your cab. You're late for the airplane. You're you don't know how to get a cab. You're trying to find food. Um, what do you eat? What do you like when no one knows you? Uh, just yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a it, lot of the person like is raw. No, like. Did you go with your with Yella somewhere? I mean, not before we got married, no. Although we did uh kind of. Not really. Um we did we were in a couple different environments. We went from I went like I flew from Israel where we did we dated in Israel, then we dated in and then we did a few months in America for like the engagement part of time. Um Pittsburgh, New York. And then once we got married, dude, the first, I mean, definitely massive bonding experience for us was we went to Spain for like 25 days was the trip. Uh, 25 days? 25 days and trying to sleep on $50 a night budget. Just you two? Just the two of us. Okay, dude, that's that's a proper honeymoon. That's three, yeah. one and a half weeks. That's a month yeah. almost. That's, that's a real honeymoon. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really, truly fantastic. Um, we did, we round trip out of Madrid, us silly Americans thinking Spain, some little tiny country, like, oh, let's like, we had this idea to do like <laughs> all of a Spain, like in those 23 days, like that's a long time, right? Like you can just hustle, but we only mapped out, uh, like five days in Madrid and then three days in Barcelona. And then, uh, for eight days, I don't know, yeah, five and four days in Barcelona or something, or five days in Bar, yeah, eight days in Madrid and four days in Barcelona, something like that, five five and four, um, and then not having the rest mapped out, and then, like, I remember we got to, like, day 10, we we're in Barcelona, we're in this, like, we just took, like, this seven-hour bus ride from Madrid over to Barcelona, and get there at 5.30 in the morning, and six in the morning and for sunrise it's a million degrees outside i'm putting all my fill in there's all the people drunk from the night before hanging out by the pier we're waiting for our airbnb people to wake up and we end up it ends up like it's in the slums kind of in barcelona the apartment we're staying at and it was like a a shit like a room in like this this apartment filled with like these uh feminists like like long armpit hair tattoo artists yoga teacher uh at like activist types uh like their house and they were so nice like she answers the door and she has these giant empty ear like saggy ears because there was no gauges in them like covered in tattoos <laughs> and i'm we're like holding like up this like creaky staircase we're like holy shit what are we gonna do um and we're both like i can't believe we have another 15 days left of this like like what what are we gonna do yeah, Wait, you booked that place for 15 days? No, that place was just for a few days. But we had another 15 days of our trip that we hadn't even planned yet. Right. Like, like, right. uh, and so we were supposed. And then we went down to, yeah, whatever. We just went all over Spain. Went to a beach city. We we're supposed to be there for two days, and then go to a few other cities. 
we ended up staying there for like six days on the beach and it was just so nice like in middle of a 25 day trip like smack dab in the middle having like a total revamp recuperating just like beach days and and there was kosher food and chabad houses with french people um chabad chabad is just the greatest jewish organization. chabad is like if you want to if i if I would ever describe someone like what does it mean to be jewish look at chabad that is they are like i'm ashkenaz obviously i have a lot of Sephardi roots as well and we've seen Hasidim. we've been we've been around many different sects of judaism right we know i feel like both of us we've seen a lot of Hasidus, whatever it might be chabad is by far the closest thing to what a Jew is by far. And that's simply because of their, if they're like, they're, they're, it's not even a desire, it's a need. They need to help people. They're, they're literally Avramavinus. Each individual one is little Avramavinus walking around where like they see someone coming down like 20 miles away. They're like, please come to my place. Please come to my, to, to please come to my house. Like I've lived in Madagascar for three months of the year just so that you and your wife or your girlfriend who happen to be walking around, don't even know we exist, can walk into our Chabad house and we can serve you food Chabad is literally fi- is the most thing that I've read when it comes to Jewish people by far at least, at least this down age I don't even know the story of Chabad I don't know much Chabad a lot of my friends are having to be Chabad now because they're just cool kids but yeah, dude, Chabad is the closest thing I think that to Jews there's something about traveling that like when you're in motion at least for myself when I'm in motion it just feels right I don't know what it is it just meeting new people it's such a high for me. It's literally like a drug for me, meeting new people and just going up, going from a place to place. Something about me, me like new. Like I need new. Like I need new in my life. I, I'm a drug to it. Like meeting new people or a new place or a new location or a new city, whatever it might be. Like there's just something rush about something being new. I feel like there's the, the, the value of like new is something that like you can't do anything wrong. There's no judgment. There's no preconceived stuff. There's no future stuff. It's just new. Like nothing you do can be wrong when you're in a new place or you meet with a new person. There can't be no wrong because like it's it's a new experience. So you're going to react the way that you're going to react. That's why I feel like I love it. It's so raw. There's no like preconceived notions. There's no ideas of what you should or can't do. Again, if you're approaching it in, 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 the, in, in a correct way, you could just let yourself be. The second you go to the, back to the exact same place, you will always, always, without a doubt, compare it to the time you were before. And it'll be a comparison game all the way through until you leave and come back and do it again. And if you do it the third time, okay, then the third time it'll be a more objective view. And the fourth time, maybe you'll get bored of it. But the first time, there's nothing like the first time. It's just, it's raw. Like it brings out who you are. Like you can't, you can't fake a new experience. You know, you can't fake it because you don't know what it, what, you don't know what it's supposed to be. You don't know what you're supposed to be faking it as. So you can just exist as you are. And I love it. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a real thing. There's a reason it's a I'm sure a multi billion dollar industry, the travel industry, and uh, why people have even when it was risk of life and death, people traveled and explored, and it brings out that inner desire to I don't know, conquer a new place, get to know a new place. Also, you have the idea of like shine makom shine mazel, a uh, change of place is change of your luck of, and I don't like I mean we know place is a real a real thing right um even uh the, the so it's place meaning time and place time and space are the two like irremovable concepts like we can't think without them like we everything we think about exists within time and space uh that's a pretty powerful basis so yeah you change your space and also as everybody anybody who travels 
like you think like oh why would you go to paris and then rome and then jerusalem like what's the difference it's just a bunch of different cities that essentially have bars cafes marketplaces and bricks and glass and roads and like what's like the difference uh like why like you can open up the brochure and just or watch a movie about going to rome and get your fix if you want to see rome like why why like you could see rome in vr if you want um like why do you need to go there why should you even bother to travel to a place um and then you have lines like when in rome and that means so much because every place has its own I don't know, almost magnetic pull. Like different cities attract different people. New York, you have a, a personality that's from New York. Uh, a, a, a Californian, they have a certain personality. Uh, there's a certain personality that comes and is, are the people with that personality living in that place or is there something about that pe place that is conducive to that that person that attracts that personality to it? Like Svat, like as an extreme example, uh, like there's a, a super intense like character that you can draw of Svat that everybody could recognize. And Nachlaot has a certain character. And um, it's just, yes, the Neighborhood Tel Aviv, they all have their own character and they all attract a different type of person. And you can almost, it almost fits like oh, yeah, a beach city versus a mountain city. Like you're going to be able to tell that in the personality of the person there no uh, so true like it i feel like it opens you up like it makes you like because like what's i'm human they're human we're all human we all need to drink and eat food and have sex and create things in our lives and build whatever it is what we're trying to build like we're all the same human so it's almost like wow like look at that human is like this type and this human is that type it kind of like it opens up your mind to recognize like you have the ability to be more than just a person who you are it's an expansion you're, you get to expand yourself and like kind of look at yourself through a different person. That's why like having multiple cultures, multiple people, like we're saying, I like it's such like a great benefit to see something else because they're not just like you know you change your place, you change your luck, um, but it's also like you can you can see another human being how they are. They might be happy, they might be sad, they might be have more food, have less food, have more wealth, have less wealth, like whatever it might be. It's just a different human, completely different than you, and emotions and thoughts and ideas. Um, but they're still like the the canvas is still the same. The blank the canvas started the same. It started as a baby, and then it, it developed in this location. This location gave it these abilities and these attributes, where you developed in your location and gave you your abilities and your attributes. And sometimes it's just amazing to walk around and see other people, and like just understand that they're the same type of human as you are, but yet completely different in culture and thought or in what they hold value or even the way they find meaning or the way they find pleasure, whatever it might be. Uh, it's just amazing to keep walking around and meeting more of those people. I feel like it allows you to go into them and like just see a different part of yourself. Like, oh, I can do that, or oh, I can see this, or I can incorporate this, or I can incorporate that. It just expands you as a person. I think I remember when I was in, I think it was eighth grade, my dad took me on a trip to Argentina. He was giving a shear there. So he took me with him on a trip to Argentina. I was probably, um, what was I, 13, 14, 15, whatever it might have been. And I remember, like, there were, I had so many good friends at Miami at the time. I was going really, really well. It was fun. School was fun. I was on the basketball team. And I went to Argentina. And I remember, like, wait a second. Like, if I'm here, like, they're not there, though. Like, if I'm here, like, they must not exist in Miami. Like, nothing exists because I'm here. And uh, obviously, they were having fun and they were doing their stuff in Miami. Well, I was doing my fun and I was doing my stuff in Argentina. And that's when the first time I remember it hit me. It was like, whoa, like, you cannot be multiple places at once. Like, I understood it deeply. I was just like, 
they're there and I'm here and I cannot be there. I'm, I'm defined and I'm confined to my space of where I am in this very moment. And I remember being super depressed about it because I realized that like I can't be a part of everything that happens in this world. I can only be a part of what it is I'm a part of. And it hurt me. I literally, I was like, I was like ouch. Like, like, like it was like a depression type of thing. I was like, I want to be a part of everything. And I think ultimately, I think every human wants to be a part of all of it. I think ultimately when you go on to the next world, like you become that as you were where you go. It, we all started from one point and then we kind of just got to spread out. And then maybe when you pass and the world comes back to its center point, you come back to it. But I think everything is connected. And ultimately, I think, I think we all have this deep desire to be a part of everything that there is in every moment and every idea and every person and every situation, just to be whole in it, to, to be one, to be fully, fully one. Um, and I remember first feeling that un-oneness when I was like 14, 15 then, and just carrying it with me and understanding like the most you could be is where you are. But also understanding that at some point in the future, we're all going to come back to one. And I'm going to end this thought with a question to you. When you were speaking about um, being that one, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. I had it. Uh, oh, so you mentioned that we, like we, like as Jews, like you mentioned like we're finite, right? Our time here is a finite time. So I, I, I don't believe that for myself. I don't, I don't think you believe it for yourself either because we've been taught from a very, very young age of Olam Haba and the next world. And all before we can speak words, we know there was a next world coming for us. So I don't think me and you as Orthodox, as growing up as Orthodox Jews specifically, have kind of had that fear really, really ingrained. We're like, we're like, oh my God, we have, this is all we have. Unless you tell me a different one, but I feel like we both have like that understanding that like, it's it just, it's in our DNA. We're like, okay, yes, like we're going to do the best we can here. And yes, here is finite. But we, it's like, it's so obvious to us that there's Tchias Mason and that there's a next world after us. I, I don't feel like I personally feel like that fear of like death as much. It just feels like, I feel like it's just a transition. Although like when I'm thinking about it, as you spoke about it, it would be fucking scary as hell if I didn't believe in an afterlife. I might be 10 times more efficient even. I don't know. Like I might use that to my advantage, but yeah, it would be way scarier. Way, way scarier. And I even remember like um, our non-Jewish teacher asking him in seventh grade, his name is Mr. Waite. I remember asking him like, because he was, he, he was, he was, he wasn't Christian. He was atheist. So he didn't, I don't think he believed in God. But I asked him, that question was like, if you prefer being like in ancient Egypt, we're talking about, we're speaking about Egypt at the time. He's like, would you prefer being uh, an ancient Egyptian or an ancient Sumerian? And he answered the best answer ever. It was beautiful. He answers like, I prefer being an ancient Sumerian because the ancient Sumerians, they believe that this was just a transition in your life and that the afterlife was much better than the one that they were in. So they're all their lives. They were more happier knowing that, okay, one day they're going to die and they're going to move on to a, a better, nicer world. Which is the Egyptians, they believe that this was the whole entire point of the earth and the world and nothing happened after that. It's like, why would I want to live in a world where nothing ever happened after that? And I think it speaks true. I think like in this lifetime, which of those two options you choose is how you'll be able to live in this lifetime, which obviously is the only an important thing. But having that thought for the future will affect how it is that you live this life. So Again, simply put, like, do you think that we're less sensitive to the fact that death is going to come upon us one day because we believe there's an afterlife so strongly? No. How so? Or what are your thoughts? Um, uh, yeah, uh, just we might spend... Uh, first off, Judaism is not a, a religion that puts that much emphasis on the afterlife uh or ideally it does not it recognizes that the afterlife you only get whatever you reaped in this world so if you spent your entire life if i feel like i'm behind in this world and i feel like i haven't done everything that i could have done and could be doing at 
present moment and I don't feel like my I'm spending enough time caring about my character and and my relationships and my connection to God and and then I go and I lit and I, then I have to experience whatever inadequacy I had essentially for eternity um, I'm not so into that we do have the idea of kares, um of being cut off from that afterlife uh, that is possible we I, I, I think there's yeah a certain amount of uh, con contextual awareness that the afterlife provides us with but I, I, I would say that I mean, my argument is you don't need an afterlife. Like if you just, I mean, you actually, you do need an afterlife. You absolutely need an afterlife. Almost none of our, none of the pursuits that we engage in um, have any meaning whatsoever. You could argue that there's some value we have evolutionarily speaking to life. Like why should I care to have kids? Like why should anybody care to have kids? Why does life care to continue life it's not me i'm gone i'm dead what is like what does it have to do with me why do i care that my genes reproduce that my genes are still in the mix like what the heck does that mean my genes so okay so there is a way in which that i am not me or i'm not just me i am my genes and my genes have been passed down to me since we were apes or since adam and chava however you're going to think about it and and since we were Avram Yitzchak and yaakov and like our genes are have been passed down and they continue to exist. This nation called Israel continues to exist, um, and maybe my kids within that nation. Um, so, like, I think of, I was thinking the other day of being in a, a, we always draw family trees from, like, the furthest point at the top, and then the tree kind of expands down. But if you flip the whole map upside down and you realize everything that that is, bef like, above you really is be behind you, right? Like, you come from it. And you're essentially a tentacle on a branch of a tree that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And at this current moment, you're like you have all your brothers, you have all your siblings, you have all your cousins, everybody who's in the same generation as you. And basically, you are deciding whether or not what type of branch you're going to be going forward and how many sprouts you're going to put off and how strong and how thick and how uh, like how like you're going to do whatever you can to continue your personal line in this physical world. So even without an afterlife, there is still an, a life after life. And so there seems to be value in caring about that. Um, but I don't, I really don't think that we have aware of it. Everybody's aware of it. Everybody's aware of the fact that they die and, and no one has any awareness of what it's like after they die. Cause if somebody has come back from the afterlife, um, of course, you can't really describe it to people who are in this world that exist in time and space. So what are you going to do? Right. In this world that you live in right now as a conscious mental, the way you look at the afterlife will affect the way that you enjoy your life currently. Absolutely. Well, regardless of whether it exists or not, or whether you're happy with it or you're blessed or you're curious or not, your, your, your thoughts that you let, your, that you let run through your mind actively affects you where you are now. Yeah so funny having these conversations Mendel they really bring me back to like when I was a kid like I remember when I was a kid like I used to trip myself out all the time I would trip myself out I would just think about like what the fuck is the world like what is a human why am I only in this body why can't I be somewhere else or like what is money like what is everyone going after money 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 or I'd be like what is the afterlife like why me like why am I aware of myself in this mind in this time period and I never had an answer and then and there isn't an answer it just it's the fact that your brain can even go there it's, it's a trip it just trips you out 
And I used to do crazy stuff. I used to like, I used to like try to play with my mouth or with my eyes. Like, I don't know. Like, I used to try to get out of like my own body. And honestly, thank you for these conversations because sometimes I, just, I feel like I go back to like life as I've gotten older. I just got more serious. It, it, it just, it's gotten more responsibility, more serious. I, yeah, I think finances, you have employees. I, those are all true statements, but I think the, you articulated it for yourself clearer than you explained it. Um, that this bringing you back to a childhood where you would trip yourself out, what's changed between now and then is that you think you know more about the world. You, you've put things into neat little boxes. You, and they, they're there and you've asked the questions, you've thought about them and you did or didn't get an answer and your curiosity has, has been, and you don't have time for curiosity as much as you need have for responsibility. And I think when a human realizes that he, his responsibility is his curiosity, that he's constantly curious and that that is the part of him that he needs to respect most, the part of him that is that doesn't know, that asks Lima for what or why or how and seeks to understand God and his world, essentially. And they're both as infinite and ungraspable as you could possibly imagine. Uh, they're beyond anything you can, go, you can possibly imagine. And so when we have these conversations where it, we're asking, we're just dealing with the simplest texts, right, that we learned six years ago. And we love them, but we let go of them because we learned it already. And when you realize the moment that you're not doing Chazara on something, you're forgetting it. Like, what does that really mean? You're, like, if you don't, yeah, you basically forget things if you don't do Chazara. And it's prohibited to do review. And so, like you said, it makes you trip out again and you realize you don't know because you're thinking about it directly and to me that's like that is what conversation's about that's what we're supposed to be doing we're supposed to be playing and as childish and inquisitive and curious and as we can possibly be and that is the ideal and that is what we all that is what i pursue that is what i aim to be engaged in and by doing that like honestly the ultimate like that is how you get to know yourself and get to know other people. And if looking at God's world is what brings us to an awareness of God and an appreciation of him and his complexity and his simplicity and, and the wonders and the infinite nature of his creation and the reason and the logic and the sense that it makes and how it works and how profound it is and how it's more every single watch that people spent all their time and millions of dollars making exist in this world like 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 in all every masterpiece and ai program and painting and building exists inside of this creation and so if that's true about his creation at whole all the plants and all the biology the psychology of the human being uh wrapping this conversation back up to the beginning where you by looking at the world with inquisitive eyes by being on the lowest level of ignorance and always kind of always thinking of yourself on this lowest level of ignorance and studying Derek Eretz and 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 your midot and and what your wants are and what your desires are and what makes you feel good and what makes you feel bad and what you should avoid and what you should move close to where you should be what activities you should be engaged in 
And if you're, if you practice it and you know it and you ask the questions as often as possible and we have fun with it and I get to know you and I get to know me in the process, I got to know God, right? Like that's, that's, and that's what it's all about. That's the mission. That's the vision. I love that. It's like we begin the first question you asked me today, which was like, so, so well, first of all, who are you? And second of all, like, what have you learned in this life? We're, uh, it, we're going back to that seriousness versus non-seriousness, which I talked about, which is like, like, like right now, like my life has been more serious than ever been. Like I'm running a company financially trying to build wealth so I can survive. And so I can have money to support not my girlfriend, she doesn't need my support, but to one day, hopefully she's my wife to support her if she wishes to be supported and the kids and all that. So like, I'm already right now working for kids. I'm already working for a relationship. I have an apartment to, to pay and a car to pay, investments to pay off, whatever it might be. I have a, so much stuff going on in the financial realm to keep to you know keep afloat and keep building. And so like one day I'm like, you know, send my kids to private school and have a nice car or a, or a house or be able to host guests and all those dark type of things. At the same exact time, like all that, all that time and effort doing, trying to build myself up into a human is responsibility. And it is a healthy way in this world and then this world, but it's a healthy way where I am in my society of building like the healthy way in my society. And I think our society as well as we live in the same kind of society, same circles is to build yourself, whether it's wealth, whether it's personally, so you can support your family and your community, your friends and, and have, and have a great time while doing it. At the same exact time, like the non-serious part of it, like <laughs> like this is tough it's not exactly the most enjoyable part it is tough to get there it's enjoyable as you go through it sometimes but like the non-seriousness of it like sometimes I just want to like stop everything and not do any of it and just travel and just go to Asia and not do any of this not do this whole entire thing of like okay I'm working I have a girlfriend I'm building my relationship up and I'm and I'm gonna hopefully you know try to make her into my wife and someone I love and into my queen and then have kids and have a dog and have a house and that, whatever it might be like just like I, I, I feel like this is like the life that I'm moving on and this is, and I'm happy. And this, then this is the life that I've been given. This is the life where I'm probably leading myself to, with a family and kids and a wife and and a house and cars and schools and plays and parent teacher conferences and all that stuff. And then another part of me just wants to do none of that, none of that, and just travel and just do nothing for the rest of my life. Just like travel and just 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 exist. I don't know. Like that. That's the thing that got me that I'm going through. And obviously, like the life, that, like that's, family and all that. That's yeah. the you. That's I mean. It says I placed between before you the path of life and the path of death. Please choose life. And the world, if we're, if I can almost summarize uh, the the two paradigms, the two choices set before you, set before me, set before every man really and every woman to uh, to with different language, I would say, but you could probably describe in a fem feminine way that same dichotomy: what to choose between. But you're choosing between a life of responsibility, taking care of, and a life of choosing life, meaning you're going to make a house which could support life and like and and support life and maintain life and enhance life. Like, or I'm going to YOLO and I live only once and I'm what matters, my my meaning, my fulfillment, my my curiosity, my individuality is all that actually truly really exists and all meaning and all purpose and all in all pursuit of is just projections of meaning and projections of purpose and there is no real meaning to any of this and if there's not 
any meaning other than the right now. I better make sure whatever I'm doing right now is always enjoyable and always pleasurable and always exciting. Like, cause I'm going to die tomorrow and like, and no one's going to remember me. So who cares? And so those are, that's the Amalek versus Israel. Like that's, those are the two paradigms. That is the nihilism versus just uh, a, a life of meaning. But the nihilist claim is the truest claim that you are absolutely unique and it is up to you to choose and whatever you choose is what you're going to get so the life you choose to live is the life you're going to get so the world you choose for yourself is the world that you are going to get and that's in the this world and in the next world and so which world yeah, you get, it's a two for one. You get your, you create your next world. And the only reason the next world, by the way, is meaningful or significant or valuable, actually valuable would be the best word, is because it's the, it's because of its attachment to this world that your attainment of it comes through this finite world where, and that's where v value only exists in relation to a finite asset, a finite, uh, like, it's it just there's a degree of scarcity that's almost necessary in value at least the way we conceive of value yeah like i remember like talking to a, a good friend like a very smart friend deep friend she's talking about life and like i asked him like a question about i don't know like life and existence like what's our purpose here and meaning and some like nihilistic nietzsche type of question where like nothing's meaningful and nothing's purposeful like this world is probably better not lived like what the fuck are we doing here and he's like he's like dude like let me tell you this he's like you're right and like let me just tell you this like when you have like, two kids and a wife, it doesn't matter. It's like no question that you bring up about Nietzsche or Freud or anyone or or Schopenhauer. It doesn't matter what they say. You know why? Because you don't have time to think about what they have to say. You have to care for your two kids and your wife. And like, there's beauty in that. And because it, because it, it, it is like like a knife that just slices through the question in like one swoop, one quick samurai swoop. It just cuts it down like it's a perfect clean cut. Like you have kids and a wife. That's it. it doesn't matter, bro. You have to focus on that. But the same exact time, like it's still like it's it's not that it's not true. It's like it's almost like it's a it's, it's either it's like it's an answer to the question and an evading of the question at the exact same time. It actually, it is an answer to the question. Uh, What's the purpose it, of life? I have a wife and two kids. Stop. Doesn't matter. Boom. Done. I I I, I would say it's a better. It's it, you could. It's the same point. It it's true that once you have a wife and kids, it's much harder to. Like if if what it, like Jordan always says, uh, I act as if there is a God. Right, and he points out that almost, that we all act as if there is meaning and there is purpose and there is value and there is significance to this world, and we don't just walk around with our pants off, even though it's a simulation, and we don't just walk around slapping people and and killing mm -hmm. people like it's a video game, like that. Like we don't do whatever we want. We exist within boundaries. We try to get away with things, but once yeah, once you have kids, once you have life that you are actually responsible for, whether you like it or not. Um, and that you would actually be considered by society, at the very least, a, a a bad person if you neglected your kids and you because ne neglect is also a form of abuse. But there are parents who don't keep their kids, who don't take care of their kids, who don't and who have kids and they try, but they have mental health issues and their own traumas and their own anxieties that. Uh, and their lack of skill because they never grew up in a household where they knew how to take care of a kid because they weren't taken care of. Like you have all of that. Um, 
So it is definitely, it is definitely a reality that we contend with and live in relation to. And that's why having some t transcendent sense of meaning or purpose or a transcendent structure, hierarchy of values, uh, um, something that's singular to pursue that imbues everything with meaning um, because otherwise it's either it's all meaningful or it's all meaningless that I don't really think there's any in between and as far as you said in the beginning you used the language of take life seriously you're like I do you were struggling with like I do take it seriously but like don't take it seriously you take life seriously at every single moment all the time just don't take yourself so seriously um, or maybe it's the other way around but there's a certain like just that offense and botheredness that you get when you take yourself so seriously that person who gets scuffed their shoe and flips out or gets cut off and gets enraged or uh like as soon as you feel like your boundaries are the the, the parameters in which other human beings should live within like that's that's taking yourself seriously uh but take life that's seriously a great example that's a great example. Like the guy cutting you off or you're spilling some milk or your car getting towed or someone being upset at you. Like you getting upset back at that is, is taking life too seriously in that sense in those situations because like we both, we've all been in those situations. So we've all been in situations where we've gone mad. We've all been on the other side where we're just kind of like make a joke of it or be funny about it. Like you get into, a car, into an accident. I think that everyone's fine, but like you make a quick joke about it, whatever it might be. Like, yeah, so that's like taking life less seriously. This seems like time. I mean, you made a distinction between taking life seriously and taking yourself less seriously, or whichever way it works, the other way around as well. But yeah, that, that's what it feels like. You know, it's like a balance of like knowing what to take seriously. Like, like let's say someone came into your house, God forbid, and, 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 and beat your wife up. That's not, you will not make a joke about that. That's not something to be joyful about. Someone, if, if, if someone, if the moral comes back from God and said, oh, this kid hit your kid, that's, that's, that's not something to make fun about. Or if someone stole from $100,000 from your bank, that's not, you know, like, there's things that you don't make fun about and there's things that you are making fun about. I do feel like there's a lot more things that you should be making fun about than things you should be taking seriously. Um, but like, it just, because at the end of the day, like, this is a pretty crazy game that we're in. And I love what you said. I think we're just, I think Jordan Pearson and it says, like, I act as if I believe in God or we act as if we believe in God because it's so true. Because if someone actually sits down and thinks about and doesn't believe, like, either in an afterlife or a God, like, what the fuck is stopping you from going out naked and just stealing and or raping or just jumping off the building? Like, what what's stopping you, bro? Like, like if I think that that sounds like the most fun to me, like go go literally be in go do like GTA, like go play in the GTA game. Like that's 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 exactly what people other do people the game. Other people are God in that scenario. That is what stops they become the from God. Doing that. Right? Meaning, opening meaning. Uh, the reason I don't go around is because jail and. And I do want to live like, and I do want to have another beer tomorrow. So if I go on a, and I go and do something horrible today that could put me in prison, I won't be able to go to Switzerland or whatever. So there's like self-preservation of, like, well, that's that's psychopaths where they just use the world around them. They could be smart, uh, and but they look at the world as a means to an end, uh, and really look at people as means to an end. And I think that's uh, that's what Kant says. We we cannot do is you can never treat a human being as a means to an end uh and that's like the, the big low say because human humans met people individual are ends in and of itself you can use an animal as a means to an end you could use a, a 
tree as a means to an end, but you cannot use a person as a means to an end. Um, but how did we get onto that? I think I'm losing my steam. Uh, we got how we get into anything. We just start talking, Mandy, and then somehow it all gets connected at some point. It's all connected, man. It is, dude. Ultimately, like I just don't. I'm just scared because my life's not so serious right now. You know, I feel like your life is more "quote unquote" serious than what we're talking about. I do not want to become that robotic, serious person that has to, you know, that can't be goofy. Um, You'll never have to be that. You can always be yourself, like in the best version of yourself. And another thing that I read in the Rambam today that was so good is he was like uh, talking about like if you're pursuing indulgences and pleasures, uh, like to the as if they're an end in of itself. Like, that's not good, right? You don't lay in your walls with gold and, and put golden hems in your pants. He's like, unless that's something that heals your soul. Um, and then you could do that. And he kind of opened up with, in that one sentence, contradicting himself, that you could, that you shouldn't be an overindulgent person who puts gold on their walls and gold in their pants. But if you're the type of person in order to hear, heal your psyche, your, yourself, you need to have something like that, then it's okay. Um or like uh, you're not supposed to work out to be an Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like you should work to be for longevity, for strength, to be able to be healthy and do well and run when you need to run and, and stay alive for as long as possible to be a good partner and a good friend and a good earner and a good boss for as long as possible. That's why you work out. Unless uh, you're... He says he calls it the marsh horror, the melancholy or depression. In order to cure your depression, you need to do uh, 16 hours in the gym a day. I don't know. like, But, oh, this is the point I wanted to bring up a little earlier, and maybe we can close on this. There is this – we live in this world where all the podcasts we listen to, all the people we follow on Instagram – I mean, by all of us, I mean the people who are listening to a conversation like this is all like – ice baths and fasting and and re yoga retreats and silent meditations and uh like extreme workouts and david goggins and jocko willink being very hard and very disciplined and this obsessive self-help thing like a world that we live in and one thing i think is important for myself to keep in mind is when we look at these people who are like this healing journey and like they almost worship healing for healing's sake, um, and and we look at let's say we and we look at them as the ideal, and then we try to model them. Well, if we take a step back and you realize that some of the activities they're participating in are only ones you need to participate in when you are healing, right? Like the same, like you need to go to an opposite extreme. And, and then eventually you'll come to a happy medium. You might, if you're super overweight and you're super fat, you might need to spend two hours a day, three hours a day working on your your fitness and your physical health. But eventually you should get it down to 40 minutes and like, or, uh, and, and, and it'll be a well-oiled machine. The extreme that we are attracted to that we glorify isn't actually the ideal. Those are merely means to an end. And what's that end? Uh, for me, that end is is leading the most meaningful, fulfilling life where I get to know the world as intimately as possible and as broadly and as deeply as possible and be able to communicate that. Like, 
So if it's one thing, everything I'm guided to is is uh, to make the world a better place, to know God. I, I don't know how to de- define it, but I think it's to know God. And that's that's what that's everything's a means to that end, um, to a degree. And otherwise, it we I don't know. The Rambam says that like we people would look at these like Hasidim who would go out into the wilderness and meditate on hilltops, and then they would derive that for themselves they should also do that. Uh, and he was he likened that to somebody who saw someone taking insulin, right? Doctors injecting insulin into somebody's arm and seeing that that guy that it healed the man, and uh, and me deciding to go take insulin on my own just because if that heals him, it'll also heal me. And realizing everybody has their own um, unique but set of practices that they need to participate in in order to keep them uh, even, healthy, and sane. And just because you saw a 90-second reel on Instagram and just because you saw this doesn't mean you have to do it and measure yourself like to you it. It's the right time. Like You have to apply those self-help to yourself in the right time. It's not at all times that you need help. You don't always need help. You might always be on YouTube, but you might not always need help. Yeah, it's a good point. Because we're always look. We always think we need help, outside help, outside help, and sometimes you got it. You know, I mean, most of the time, I'd say it's safe to say you got it, man. Just think this one through, talk it out, think about it a little more, seek some advice from somebody you can see yourself listening to, uh, and it being fruitful for you. And yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, big guy. I got to run. I think you do as well, but good stuff. Great talk. Good to be back on here. It's been like two weeks. We had a Pesach break. We're both back at it. Let's start my week with a good conversation with an amazing.